This is the Bible Book Club. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And we're in the book of 1 Samuel. Welcome to the club. In episode one of season nine, we learned that the books of First and Second Samuel are the story of Israel's leadership transition from judges to the first two kings, which they asked for. Yeah. Saul, who failed due to pride and disobedience, and then David, who is called a man after God's own heart. We also discussed that Israel has a problem. Everyone does as they see fit because they had no king. The truth is God was supposed to be their king. Israel was a theocracy, but they wanted a real live king and they asked for one. So God's solution to their problem was to provide a human king chosen by God and anointed to lead the people. In chapter one, we read the story of Hannah and Samuel. It's a beautiful story about a faithful woman struggling with infertility. Hannah turned to God in her distress, promising that if God gave her a son, she would dedicate him to God's service for life. Samuel was conceived, born, nursed, and weaned as a toddler, then given to the high priest Eli to serve the Lord. All right, in scene one, Hannah's joy overflows in public praise. Hannah's prayer is really a song or psalm of praise. Hannah's song is sometimes called the Magnificat of the Old Testament because it parallels Mary's song in Luke 1, the Magnificat of the New Testament. Like Hannah, Mary sings or praises as a response to a child. Hannah's song also serves as a bookend to David's song. Hannah's song is sung in the beginning of 1 Samuel, and David's song is sung at the end of 2 Samuel. Hannah begins the book by singing in celebration of what God has done and looking forward to what he will do in the future, while David ends the book singing in celebration of God's faithfulness and looking back on the past. The song of Hannah is filled with joy, but it is rather unusual for a new mother. First Samuel chapter two. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. So first, you, you'll notice it sounds like a victory kind of thing. It almost sounds like a battle song. But Hannah is praising God for what he has done for her in these two verses. And that's her victory over infertility. Exactly. With the gift of this child, Hannah is feeling the blessing and power of the Lord. The phrase, my horn is lifted high, is animal imagery of strength. Picture kind of a ram on the mountaintop, head lifted high, horns silhouetted against this guy. He's defying nature. Hannah has given birth. She has defied nature and she is giving the credit to God. Her heart is so full. She feels like she could do anything with the Lord. Hannah's story is a picture of our story. She was barren and fruitless until God filled her womb. We are spiritually barren and fruitless until God fills our heart. God creates life in people where there is no life. The creation of life in us points back to Genesis and the tree of life, the tree that we lost access to at the fall. God created the world and he created us. He is in the business of life and has been since the beginning. Yet it's so easy to forget that he is our source of life. Well, after praising God for what he has done for her, Hannah focuses solely on praising God for who he is and what he has done 
for the world. Verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. If you ever kneel down or sit down to pray and you can't open, just start praising God. In this just short two verses, Hannah said, he is holy, he is a rock, he is God. It gets your mind in a right position of who God is and how big he is and what we can ask him for. Verse four, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah is praising and contrasting the blessings and curses of the Lord. He brings death and life. He sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He sets the world on the foundations of the earth. He guards the faithful and silences the wicked. He will judge in the end. Continuing in verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. All right, this was the last verse of Hannah's song, and it is quite prophetic. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah started the song with how her horn was lifted high in triumph, and she ends her song with a prophecy of the horn of an anointed one. Now, anointed is from a Hebrew word related to Messiah, and this is the very first mention of the Messiah in the entire Bible. Hannah was prophesying of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one who will save his people. Now, Hannah realizes that her story is part of a much bigger story. The story of how God will save Israel because they cannot save themselves. Hannah's son, Samuel, will be the next step in God's solution. Samuel will help establish a king anointed by God. And after that, God will send one even greater, his very own son. Because we, like Israel, cannot save ourselves. Spoiler alert. Yes. (laughs) Continuing in verse 11, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. The boy Samuel began to minister before the Lord. Now scene two is about Eli's sons who were scoundrels. This scene turns from Hannah and the birth of her son Samuel, who will be the future prophet and priest to Eli, the current high priest. Now, the story of Eli's wicked family is a sorry contrast to Samuel's faithful family. The curious thing is that Eli was apparently a good mentor to Samuel, while at the same time permitting his own sons to go wildly astray. Eli's sinning sons were named Phineas and Hophni. You may recognize the name Phineas, but do not be confused. This Phineas is not at all like the heroic killer priest Phineas, the grandson of Aaron. 
This Phineas was probably named after his famous relative in the hopes that he would be like him. His fascinating story, for he was a killer priest, can be found in season four, the book of Numbers, episode 13. Verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was still being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. All right, Israel's problem starts at the heart of Israel's place of worship. The house of God, the tabernacle, was filled with corruption. In Joshua 18, we learn that during this time, Shiloh was where the tabernacle or tent of meeting had been set up. Therefore, all Israelites had to go to Shiloh for atonement of sin, which was accomplished through a sacrifice offered by a priest who served at Shiloh. Now, the high priest's position was passed down from Aaron to his sons. Eli is the high priest, but his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked, and the specific nature of their wickedness is tied to their position. The current high priest is their father, Eli, and that means they are in line to be the next high priest. They are in a position of great power, and they are abusing it. They have desecrated the sacrifices to God. With greed and gluttony, they defiled the offerings by taking for themselves what was meant for God. Then they have coerced the people of God to get what they want. They forced and even threatened the people. But worst of all, as priests, they are to be the most holy and faithful of all Israelites. Yet they hold God in utter contempt and use their sacred office for evil. Hophni and Phinehas are a dark contrast to Samuel and Hannah. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. If you're with us in the book of Ruth, you you noticed, and we talked about it, that the book was a little ray of hope after the book of Judges, which was very dark. And the story of Samuel's life woven in here is like this little ray of hope in the midst of Israel's fall under the leadership of Eli and his sons. Because we keep hearing, Samuel continues to minister as he grows. And his sweet mother, Hannah, continues to worship at Shiloh and remember all God had done for her while at the same time sewing a new little robe for him every year. Verse 20, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Despite Eli's blind eye toward his sons, his blessing for Hannah is kind and hopeful. Hannah's gift of her only son to the Lord's service was given back to her five times. She actually has three more sons and two daughters, but she never forgot that sweet Samuel. Unlike Eli, who seems to have forgotten his own sons. 
Hannah made little Eli that new robe and gave it to him every year. Can you imagine what a sweet picture this was? All the other children, much younger than Samuel, getting to go every single year and visit him. And remember we talked about that picnic table where poor little Hannah was on one side by herself? Now it would be this huge celebration because Paniah couldn't say a word. Hannah's side was full and probably her very own son Samuel would be serving them um, their portion. So for these little siblings, seeing their big brother so faithfully serving God's house had to be such a blessing for Hannah. Well, before we say goodbye to Hannah, for she is never mentioned again in the Bible, there are some interesting comparisons about her. We already compared her to Rachel in the last episode, but here is another. In season seven, the book of Judges, episode nine, we discussed how there are three men who were permanent Nazarites from birth in the Bible. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Now, all three Nazarites were born to women who had previously been barren. Samson's mother's name we do not know, but Hannah and Elizabeth are the other two. Hannah had Samuel, the Nazarite, who prepared the way for King David. And Elizabeth had John, the Nazarite, who prepared the way for the new king, Jesus. Elizabeth is the New Testament Hannah. Now, multiple times, God chose barren women to contribute to the story of Jesus. And in the end, God goes one step further and uses not a barren woman, but a virgin. God promised Abraham that his descendants would become as numerous as the stars. This involved children and people. Women and reproduction were always central to God's plan. And God chose to make so many of those births miraculous to remind us that His plan will only come about by His hand. Continuing in verse 21, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Well, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Hmm. I I pondered this like, what was that like? He didn't have his mother and father, but he had the presence of the Lord. It was different but divine. Verse 22, now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. All right. So now they're even sleeping with women at, at the tabernacle. It's so interesting that Eli was so quick to accuse Hannah of wickedness when he observed her, her soundless prayer in chapter one, when she was pouring out her heart in the Lord, to the Lord. Yeah, he thought she was drunk. Right. But he's just now finding out about the evil deeds of his grandsons. Like, where has he been? Eli is a parent who has been blind to the sin of his number one responsibility, the training of his children, who would be the next high priest. Finally, it's gotten so bad, Eli could ignore his son's behavior no more. Because I think, I kind of think he kind of knew about it. You know, he just was ignoring it. I don't know. Someone must have really spilled the beans on all the boys have been up to because it's too bad to ignore anymore. Eli confronts Hophni and Phinehas, but it is too late. They are way too attached to their ways and they would not listen. It is a curious situation. 
Why did Samuel listen, but not Hophni and Phinehas? It is implied that God had closed their ears. Now in Exodus, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart and would not listen to Moses. And eventually God gave him over to his obstinate ways. And from then on, it was implied that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Had Hophni and Phinehas had their opportunity to repent and refused? It appears they had long ago committed to their path of evil. And what about Eli? Why didn't he remove them from the priesthood when he found out how bad they were? He knew they continued in their despicable behavior. If he had removed them, perhaps they would have lived to repent. Verse 26, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Meanwhile, our little ray of hope, Samuel, is a glaring contrast to Eli's sons. Samuel was growing just as Jesus did in Luke 2.52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. If you are a parent, I pray that for my kids all the time. I pray that they would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So great. If it's good enough for Samuel and good enough for Jesus, good enough for us as mothers. Samuel has moved from a little water boy to a young man carrying the word of life. He is finding favor with the Lord and with people. The contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel is night and day, dark and light. Hophni and Phidias are headed toward death while Samuel grows in light and life. Okay, scene three, a no-name prophet makes God's intention final. The sudden appearance of a man of God in the Old Testament is big news. In this case, It was not good news. The house of Eli will be judged. The next man of God to bring Eli news after this prophet will be Samuel, and it's going to get worse. Verse 27, now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? There you have it. The reason for God's judgment. Eli is being judged because he is complicit in the crimes of his sons. That's probably why he never told him to stop. He has honored Hophni and Phinehas more than God by allowing them to desecrate the sacrifices to God. And it is implied that Eli himself actually fattened himself on the choice part of every offering. Eli was responsible for leading the people of Israel in worship, yet he was unfaithful as were his sons. They had an amazing opportunity to serve God and they blew it. In fact, they were leaders in bringing Israel to its lowest point. Susan, is that because we learned, um, I think it was back in Leviticus, how the the priests were supposed to treat the sacrifices and one of those things was not, they, the fat was supposed to, something was supposed to be done with yes, it, right? Yes, that was in Leviticus. God had very specific laws about how people were supposed to sacrifice and how the priests were supposed to actually execute that sacrifice. There was, were many sacrifice types that the priests were allowed to partake of and that the offerer, like the wave offering, was for both uh, God and for the person giving it. But there were many that were not. And the fat 
was a pleasing aroma to God, and that's why it was supposed to be allowed to burn off. Right. It was forbidden for them to eat it in the Correct. Yeah. But it's tasty. And it's the boys like, like it. Having a good old <laughs> steak. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel. No one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will continue to bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. In the beginning of this episode, in her song, Hannah said this prophetic statement. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. And now that in this prophecy from Samuel, we hear Eli and his sons will do just that. They are full now. But they will one day hire themselves out for food because verse 36 says God will appoint a different faithful priest and everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. So what he's saying here is no longer will your family be in the line for a high priest. You're going to be like way down the line. You're going to be begging to do anything. Right. In because the if they were actually serving the tra- tabernacle, there were certain parts of those offerings they would be allowed to eat. But because they're not, they have to beg. Right. Yes. Yeah. Or they're going to be totally kicked out of the tabernacle. Yeah. Okay. Scene four, Samuel gets a rare word and vision. Samuel has been ministering and serving the Lord faithfully, but it is here that God calls him to his ultimate purpose. The Lord calls Samuel at night when all is quiet and Samuel is still. Chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Chapter 3 starts with, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. And chapter 4 starts with, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Samuel is going to rise from a small boy ministering small tasks in the tabernacle to a ministry that will bring the word to all of Israel. Verse two, one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. There is so much imagery and symbolism here. We read that in those days, there were not many visions. And Eli's eyes are so weak, he cannot see. Eli is a picture of Israel. As the spiritual leader, the high priest of Israel, the source of truth and light, he is going spiritually blind. He cannot see the light of God, just like he's physically going blind. But it says the lamp of God had not gone out. 
The lamp in the tabernacle, the seat of God, was still lit. There was hope, and that hope was Samuel. Samuel is going to be God's provision of light in a dark place. Now, if you're ever in a dark place, know that there is a light there somewhere. Look for it. Go to it. For me, that light can always be found in the Word of God. That is why the Bible is the greatest book ever written. It is the lamp of eternal light, and it will shine a path on the way out of darkness. Now, another use of imagery is that Eli is lying in his usual place, while Samuel is lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark was. The ark is where the covenant was kept, the stone tablets. It is also where the lamp was, the one that had not gone out. The implication is that Samuel is in God's presence, guarding God's covenant, protecting God's light from going out, while Eli has gone his own way in his usual place. Continuing in verse 4, Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Samuel, here as a boy, is a great example for us as believers. He put himself at the beck and call of his master. Like every time he heard his name, he jumped up in the middle of the night. He was willing to serve at any moment, but he was confused in the process. Sometimes God's call to us does not make sense at the time. Sometimes we feel God calling, but we don't know yet what he's calling us to. That was Samuel. Like Samuel, we must continue to be willing until God reveals himself. Now, Abraham, Moses, and Samuel have something in common that may imply how important their calling was to God's big plan. In Genesis 1.11, God said, The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And in Exodus 3.4, God says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. All three of these men with huge ministries were called with a double use of their name, and all three answered, here I am. And all three were used in a mighty way. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. I feel so bad for this poor boy. He goes, here I am. He hears his name. He finally understands. Oh man, finally God's calling me. And he's so excited for his first task. And what a terrible welcome to a new job. 
Uh, God says, Samuel, your first job as a prophet is proclaiming doom over the very man who raised you and and his family. Yeah, your mentor. Oh, gosh. How old was Samuel at this point? I cannot imagine. We don't know. However, the Jewish historian Josephus said Samuel was only about 12 years old, which is so young. Verse 15, Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. So we like Eli and then we don't like Eli. I kind of feel bad because he does, he does. He recognizes the word of the Lord. He recognizes the Lord and he's trying to do the right thing in mentoring this kid, but it's not going very well the other way. Eli reveals his love for the Lord by accepting the consequences of his son's unfaithfulness and his own. Eli's sons were wicked and Eli acknowledges that God's ways are just. It is conflicting that Eli raised his sons and raised Samuel at the same time. Like I cannot map that together in my head. Was the difference between his sons and Samuel nature or nurture? Had Eli been more lenient in training his sons than he had with Samuel? I just don't know. Perhaps the sons needed a firmer hand and Eli did not comply. And, you know, Samuel had this sweet, handle-like personality. Or perhaps Eli learned from his mistake because his sons were older and was more diligent in raising Samuel. Or perhaps Samuel was just divinely protected by God. We just don't know, but we can learn from Eli as parents to be diligent in raising our children to love the Lord. And after that, to trust God for their future. And not to look the other way if you see something going on. Don't look the other way ever. Stalk their phone. No. (laughs) (laughs) Stock their social check. (laughs) Verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Okay, Samuel. Well, he started when Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed, Eli trained, God called, and Samuel grew. It all sounds so simple, so orderly, easy. It was not. Hannah had been driven by persecution to prayer. Eli, in his sorrowful old age, was making yet another attempt to raise a godly servant. And Samuel was living away from his family, alone, in a home, under an old priest, and his wicked sons, who we must assume were not delightful people to live with. And yet Samuel grew in stature and favor with God. What was his secret? Perhaps being alone gave him more time with God. Perhaps the lack of worldly distraction gave Samuel more focus on the things above. In Colossians 3.1, Paul asks us to do the same. Set our hearts on things above. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We don't have a Samuel, a a visible prophet today, but we have someone greater. 
Hebrews 1.1 says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God has spoken through his word and through his son. This book is the light on our path to fulfill His plan. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club! New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.